0: Amen. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. We'll be looking at the fifth chapter this morning, verses 13 through 15, and we come, by the Lord's providence, to a passage that shows us and looks at one of the more controversial topics in um, modern-day evangelicalism. And that is the idea of Christian liberty. Now, um, again, in God's providence, Clark has kind of given you guys a nice introduction of that this morning in our Bible study. So for those of you who heard that, this is going to be a continuation of what we looked at. The um, title of today's sermon is the, Usage, the Uses of Christian Freedom. I changed the title two days ago, and obviously I shouldn't have done that. The Uses of Christian Freedom. We're going to look at this idea of being called by God to freedom from our slavery to sin. We are free from the power of sin and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read our text. It's just three verses and then we want to go to the Lord in prayer and then we will dive into God's word. So this is Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. This is the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of the living and true God. For you were called to freedom, brethren, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Now let's go before him in prayer. Father, we come now to your presence, Lord, knowing that you see all and that you know all, that you are present everywhere at every moment, so in a way we never escaped your presence, but we come now especially before your throne of grace, asking and begging you for help in our great time of need. Lord, we need you by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit to enlighten and illuminate our hearts and our minds as to the great and glorious truths of your word. Lord, would you indeed, as we have sung, turn our eyes upon Jesus. May we look to Christ and, because of looking at our Savior, be transformed, and being conformed to his image. Lord, would you... Help us now to put away any distractions, anything that might come into our mind, anything that might go on around us to take our minds off of your truth and your word. Would you help us to put those things aside and to focus, to give you all of our devotion and all of our attention, Lord, for this next period of our worship service. Lord, it is by your word by your truth that you sanctify your people. You call us in your word to be holy just as you are holy. That is a monumental calling, a calling that we will never fully attain until you call us home in glory. But Lord, we are to strive for that. We are to labor for that. We are to toil for that. And I pray, Lord, that in this time you would help us to labor to become more like Christ. Lord, may the word of Christ dwell in us richly. May we see our Savior high and lifted up, the one to whom is given the name above all names, the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion and might forever and ever. May we look to him And may we be transformed. May we be made to be more like our Savior today. Lord, would you glorify yourself in accomplishing that work as we look to your word. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So again, the uses of Christian freedom. We we come to this idea... And it is one of the long-running debates and discussions within Christianity. How do we live as those who are liberated and those who are free in Christ? This topic is of tremendous importance. As we strive in our obedience, as we strive in a wrong way in accordance with our freedom in Christ, we end up down the road as legalists. Likewise, on the flip side of that coin, if we are free in Christ and we are so free in Christ that we overrealize that freedom so that we walk in sin, that we commit things that we should not commit, then we end up in lawlessness. That's the two sides of the coin, legalism and lawlessness. And this is of great importance because ultimately those two sides of the coin can be condemning. They can be damning. You can walk in such a way that you are a legalist And you prove that you have put your confidence in the flesh and thereby, as Paul told the Galatians, nullified the grace of God. Now, for those in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can strive for and seemingly outwardly over a short period of time show that you have attained faith in Christ. But then over the long run, you prove to be nothing but a legalist, nothing but a rule follower. In the same way, if you walk so far in your liberty to say, I am free to do all these things that you are not free to do, all you prove yourself to be, again, in the long run of your life, is one who does not know Christ, who has not come under the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is of eternal significance, how the Christian uses his liberty in Christ. We do not ever interpret the scriptures through the lens of culture, but we do interpret the culture through the lens of scripture. And if we were to step back and look at our culture, we would see and know a people, especially in the last 50 years, who demands freedom in every aspect of life. And I do mean every aspect of life. The world wants to be free from any suggestions of criticism. The world wants to be free from any condemnation, anyone coming to tell them that they should not engage in certain acts. Not only do they want to be free from that criticism, but we are expected by the world to come alongside of them and celebrate the wicked, evil immorality in which they walk. Our culture demands to be free from obstruction and free from resistance, and yes, even free from the conviction of the truth. Of God's Word. We live in evil days. We live in sinful days. But friends, that's our culture. What's worse is that this idea pervades and, and works its way into the church at times. This idea that I am free in Christ, therefore I can do whatever my conscience allows. And friends, that is not true. That is unbiblical. That is an over-realized liberty in Christ. We could develop a long list of items where, where there is a debate and there's discussion about how free are we in Christ. Do you drink alcohol? What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of books do you read? How, are, are, what is modest for a woman to wear? What is immodest for a woman to wear? What constitutes foul language versus what is pure and holy speech? Those are things where there is, rightly so, some level of discussion within evangelicals. Those are things that, that there are trusted believers who have walked with the Lord for many years that they may land in slightly different places, but ultimately the truth is the truth. There are some gray areas, but we're not talking about those small gray areas of, does a woman wear pants or does she have to wear skirts only? Some of you may not think that's a small gray area, but it's an example. Do I drink alcohol or do I completely abstain from alcohol? There is some gray area there that firm, mature believers can have disagreement. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about those who go and abuse their liberty in Christ. Those who misunderstand, misuse, and abuse what it means to be free in Christ. Christ, what it means to be liberated from the power of sin because Christ fulfilled the law. So what is the answer to these challenges? What is the answer to this question of what does the Christian do with his liberty in Christ? The answer is that we look to God's word. God's word informs and instructs how the Christian uses liberty. Galatians 5 is a great place to start. There are other scriptures, even as we looked at in Bible study today, that that talk about the Christian and his freedom and his liberty, his freedom of conscience in Christ, but we're looking at Galatians 5 today. In this text, Paul exhorts us to devoted service to one another instead of selfishness. He exhorts us to pure love for one another rather than legalistic law-keeping in regard to your neighbor. And Paul exhorts us to devoted care for your fellow saints rather than biting and devouring and destroying and consuming one another. So that's kind of the the overall sketch of what we're going to look at. There's these kind of built-in contrasts in these three verses. But before looking at those, we have to look at this important statement that begins verse 13. Verse 13, Paul begins this paragraph and says, for you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. Now, as it pertains to that statement, again, there are some important, some very important facts to consider to to set this thing up so we can get the ball rolling, get the train on the track and understand what it means to be free in Christ and how we ought to live. Firstly, if you were called to freedom, you must have been called by something or someone. Dear friends, on the authority of Scripture, we can all agree that we were called by the Lord himself to freedom. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, for those whom the Lord foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Dear friends, this is the great and glorious chain of salvation that if the Lord foreknew you, he predestined you. If he predestined you, he called you. If he called you, he justified you. And if he justified you, he has already, in effect, glorified you. It sign-to-sign. Signed, sealed, and delivered, you can take it to the bank. And that is one of the great comforts of the Christian faith. One of the great comforts of the Bible is that since you were called, you can be guaranteed that you will be glorified. Now, in this, we see what theologians would call an effectual calling an effectual calling because those whom the Lord called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. The calling always has its perfect effect. If you are called of the Lord, you will be saved. It is the Lord who calls, and it is the Lord who enables our response to his call. You, dear saints, were called to freedom by the Lord. You are called to freedom by the Lord. Now, if this calling is from the Lord, and it is, and since it is an effectual calling where we will be delivered from slavery to sin unto freedom in Christ, who determines, who has the authority to tell us how we might live in light of that calling? Surely it is the Lord. The Lord called you and he has the authority because he has created all things. He upholds all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He has the authority to tell you how to live in light of your freedom in Christ. And it's in this text before us, one of the ways, some of the ways are in this text before us to see how the Lord calls us to live in light of our freedom in Christ. Now, the final thing to consider before we look directly into the contrast that Paul sets forth is what was the price of our freedom? Now, we we talked about this last week, so I don't want to rehash this in the same way, but if we're going to rightly live in light of our freedom, we must understand the authority of our freedom, which is the Lord. We must understand the purpose of our freedom, which is to glorify Christ, and we must understand the price. What did it cost for you and for me to be ransomed from the power and the penalty of sin? In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, Paul lists a a series of things showing our, our our salvation in Christ. He said that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and while we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were helpless, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. It was that death of Christ that was the price of our freedom. Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We are joined and united with Christ in his death, and we are raised with him so that we might walk in newness of life. The price for our freedom from sin was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself in human form, the sinless one, was made to be sin for us. The one who had never spoken evil, the one who had never mistreated anyone, was the recipient of insults and hate and beatings and curses. He was ultimately condemned upon the tree, bearing the full and unbridled wrath of his father in your place and in my place. So this, friends, was a most precious cost. It was the blood of Christ, the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and without spot, the blood of Christ. And so again, as we saw last week, if we're going to consider the idea of Christian liberty, we must do it in light of the cost of our salvation. If you want to talk about your liberty in Christ, but you don't want to talk about the precious blood of Christ, I can tell you before we even get started that you have liberty wrong. The who, the what, and the why of the cost clearly dictates what our freedom is from, what it is to, and how we must utilize that freedom. We are not free in Christ so that we can continue in sin. We're not free in Christ so we can fulfill the desires of our flesh and live a self-indulged life. Rather, we are free in Christ so that we might serve, that we might love and then we might care for one another. That is, in a nutshell, we could stop right there and say amen and close our service. But Scripture has more for us to see. But understand that we are free in Christ so that we can serve and love and care for our brethren. There is an important aspect of our freedom in Christ that, that brings itself into play when we talk about life within the church body life within our brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, we have a series of contrasts, three contrasts to be exact, that we want to look at to understand how the Christian should use his freedom in Christ. Number one, we see that we should pursue servanthood rather than selfishness. Servanthood rather than selfishness. Look again at verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul's concern here is clear. He is concerned that the Galatians might understand this freedom from the Judaistic use of the law that they have in Christ, and they might overrealize that and turn it into an opportunity for their flesh. The Greek term flesh here, we need to look at a couple um, a couple definitions of words here to really paint a picture of what Paul is saying. The word flesh is used in multiple ways in Scripture, and MacArthur has a good explanation that I think will be helpful and informative. He said that flesh does not refer to the physical body, but to the sinful inclination of fallen mankind. It refers to the old self whose supreme desire is to do its own will and to satisfy its sinful appetites. MacArthur concludes that flesh is a synonym for sinful self-will. So right off the bat, we understand where Paul is going for this. Do not use your freedom in Christ to fulfill the desires of your flesh. But Paul goes further. There's another word here that helps understand what he's really getting at. It's the word opportunity. It is a Greek word that speaks of military a base of military operations. Oftentimes it was used to describe the forward base of military operations in a time of war, the, the place where an offensive attack would be launched when when one nation was at war with another nation. So Paul says, do not use your flesh as that forward base of operations to launch an offensive attack against your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your freedom in Christ is not given to you to serve yourself, period. End of statement, end of discussion. You are free in Christ not to serve yourself. You're free in Christ to serve your brothers and sisters. Clark read this passage earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter speaks to this as well, so it's not just that Paul had this idea in mind, but Peter does as well. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter says that we must not use our freedom as a covering for evil, as a covering for evil. This covering, this idea of a covering is the idea of a cloak or a, a hiding place. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a scapegoat for your sin. You are not free in Christ so that you can go commit sin. You are free in Christ to love and to serve your brothers and your sisters in Christ. It is not a scapegoat for evil and for unrighteousness. So we've kind of danced around it. What's the positive command in this, that we are to pursue servanthood rather than selfishness? Again, look to the text. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Those two ideas have to be held and wedded together. That you, through love, serve one another. The word serve is the Greek term douleo, uh, the, where we get the term doulos, which you may know is translated often in Scripture as, as slave or bond servant. But what I think is interesting and might help paint the picture for this is the root term in that speaks of binding or fastening something to another thing. It is used of a husband and a wife together, that they are bound and fastened together. So through love, because you are free in Christ, you must be bound and fastened to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That idea that comes to my mind as a mechanical engineer, when I hear the term fastener, I think of a screw or of nuts and bolts. And if you've ever done any woodworking, this illustration, or if you've seen somebody do it, this might help you kind of picture what we're talking about. You have two pieces of wood that are supposed to be pressed together to make whatever you're making. Well, they're both bowed. Say so they're both bowed, and they're bowed in opposite directions, and so you've got, you've got a gap between them. How do you fix that problem? You fasten those pieces of wood together with a screw. You get your drill, you screw those together, and then everybody that comes after you has no idea that those boards were actually going in opposite direction. They are fastened together. They serve together with one another. And through love, dear friends, we are to be fastened together with one another, The Lord is very serious about his call and his instruction. Again, if you think about the idea of a husband and a wife being bound together, we understand the the high value that the Lord places on marriage, on the covenant of marriage. And just as the Lord calls a husband and wife to be bound together, he calls you with your fellow believers to be bound together. That's why we have a church covenant because we are agreeing to come together, to be bound to one another in a covenant agreement. So getting to the root of this, if we've not already gotten there, there's a question that we must ask. How can we use our Christian liberty, how can we use our freedom in Christ to lovingly serve our fellow saints? And the way that we phrase that question In our hearts, not just in what we say, but in our hearts, the way that we phrase that is of utmost importance. It's not, how far may I go in my freedom in Christ? It's not, how much can I do and not offend my brother or sister in Christ? But how might I use my freedom in Christ to love and to serve others? How might I use my freedom in Christ to love and serve my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Matthew Henry's commentary is helpful and um, gives a great explanation. He said that though we ought to stand fast in our Christian liberty, yet we should not insist upon it to the breach of Christian charity. We should not use it as an occasion of strife and contention with our fellow Christians who may be differently minded from us. But we should always maintain such a temper towards each other as may dispose us by love to serve one another. That is what Christian liberty is all about, using it by love to serve one another, not to get your own way. The biblical principle is clear. In Romans 15 verse 1, Paul says that we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Pulling that verse into our context, we can drop the idea of of those who are strong and those who are weak and just say that those of us who are in the Lord should bear with one another and not seek to please ourselves. We must not seek our own good, but the good of our fellow saints and ultimately the glory of the Lord. The main question here is not whether or not an action is sinful in your partaking of that action. That's a necessary question because that can give you an answer right off the bat. If it's sinful, then don't do it. But that's not the heart of the question in regard to Christian liberty. The question is whether or not it serves the highest good of a brother or sister in the Lord. If your brother or sister were to see or to hear of you partaking in this activity, whatever activity it is that you want to partake in, would they be edified? Would they be strengthened? Would they be sanctified? Would they be made more like Christ? would their walk with Christ be hindered? That is the standard of measure for the use of Christian liberty. Are you edifying someone? Or are you bringing them down? Are they going to hear of you doing something and say, I'll go do that too, and then they end up sinning in that matter? Friends, we must be defined... by this this type of servanthood towards our brothers and sisters. We must use our freedom in Christ for the encouragement and the sanctification of those with whom we are joined together in covenantal union in the local church. We must pursue servanthood rather than selfishness. Now, we see some more outworking of that. The, the second contrast that Paul gives us is in verse 14, and we'll look at it under the heading of love rather than law-keeping, love rather than law-keeping. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's think about the law, the, the law and its inner workings and its action toward God's people. So let's think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. And you may have heard the Ten Commandments described before as two tables of the law. There's kind of two sections in the Ten Commandments. You have the first four commandments that regard man and God, where man is called not to have another God, not to take the name of the Lord in vain, not to worship other gods, not to have idols, and to remember the Lord's Sabbath and keep it holy. That is one table of the law, one aspect of God's law through the Ten Commandments as it relates to man and God. There's a second table of the law where you see commandments about stealing and envy and adultery and murder and on and on. That regards man in his relationship to his fellow man. That is the second table of the law. And it's with those ideas in mind that Jesus, in Matthew 22, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And with that idea in mind, Jesus says, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he says the second is like it. So there are two great commandments, Jesus says. The second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is ultimately drawing from Jesus' own teaching that the whole law is fulfilled. The the greatest commandments are fulfilled in this one statement, that you love the Lord and that you love your neighbor as yourself. The Judaizers sought to bind consciences, to bring people under their own authority so they could gain power and wealth and authority and standing and reputation. Paul says, as believers, that is not our goal. We are to love one another, to fulfill the entire law. And it is interesting and worth noting that Paul does say that the law is fulfilled. It is not abolished. It is not put away. It is fulfilled in this one command that you love your neighbor as yourself. Our goal ought to be a love that fulfills the law. Our goal ought to be that we love others in such a way that we are worshiping God, that we are proving ourselves to be genuine worshipers, not that we exceed the law, not that we somehow excel beyond the law, but that we fulfill the law, that we fulfill these great commandments to love God and to love others. And as we consider this command to, to love and to obey, we have to understand that even in the Old Testament, before we see the, the giving of the Holy Spirit in the way that we may know it today, uh, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the Spirit coming in the book of Acts, the Spirit still existed and the Spirit still drove people to love the Lord and then to obey. One such example is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to how this is ordered. It says, you shall love the Lord your God and always keep his charge and his statutes and his ordinances and his commandments. But where does the Lord begin? You shall love the Lord your God and then therefore you keep his commandments. So then the question we must ask ourselves, practically speaking, what does it mean What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Let's turn back, turn with me, if you will, so you can read these scriptures for yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 19, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, Leviticus 19, and we could read even a larger section of scripture here, but we'll just take a few of these verses, pick up at verse 15. Leviticus 19, verse 15, and we'll read through verse 18. The Lord is giving a series of commandments about how his people ought to live and how they ought to act. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But look what he says here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am The Lord, on the authority of his name, I am Yahweh, I am, I am, the Lord says, these are the things that you must do to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor? By judging him fairly, by judging without partiality. Some people are partial to the poor, some people are partial to the great. Some people would say you should be partial to the poor, some people would say that I'm going to be partial to the great. The Lord says, judge fairly, judge equally. Do not judge with partiality because of someone standing in life. He says that we're not to be a slanderer towards another. We are not to act against the life of another person. Those are basic commands, commands that we would likely say, oh yeah, I got that. I'm not going to go kill somebody, and I'm not even go slander, going to go slander them behind their back. But these are the commands of Scripture to love your neighbor. The Lord says that we're not to act in hate towards other people. And one of the specific outworkings of that is that you are to reprove your brother or your sister. You're to not incur sin because they sin and you don't reprove them, but you're to go and bring that sin to light in accordance with Scripture. Don't incur sin in the way that you do it. Do what Scripture says. Go lovingly and patiently and gently and humbly. Go repeatedly. Do not incur sin, but reprove your brother or sister. That is how you love your neighbor. The Lord says that we do not take vengeance of our own and we do not bear grudges, but rather we love patiently, humbly, steadfastly, enduringly. We love. Simply stated, to, to love your neighbor is exactly what Paul described in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when he says it's to regard another as more important than yourself. To love your neighbor is to not act in a way that is selfish or conceited, but to love others and to value them above your value of yourself. So we are free in Christ And we're to use that freedom to pursue love rather than to pursue legalistic law-keeping. We're to put our brother's needs above our own and not be selfish, not be conceited, and not look to our own desires. So that's the second exhortation. We've seen that we're to pursue servanthood rather than selfishness. We're to pursue love rather than law-keeping. And then thirdly, in verse 15, we see that we should pursue devotion towards one another rather than destruction. Look at the text, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I have to admit the positive on this um, point is implied. There is nothing positive in that statement from Paul. He says that if you're going to bite and devour one another, make sure that you don't consume one another. Basically saying if you're going to bite and devour one another, you are going to consume one another. What's the opposite of this hatred and this malice? The opposite of that is obviously to love, to be devoted to another, to care for that brother or that sister. Think about what we've looked at, the the call to love and the call to serve. The exact opposite of loving one another and serving one another is what we see in verse 15, the idea of biting and devouring one another. So Paul's speaking of those who would use their freedom in Christ as an opportunity for their flesh to bite, devour, and consume, and destroy a brother or sister. Now, these commands, as we really think about them, should be very sobering to us. We really should pause and consider what does it mean to to bite and to devour? What does it mean to consume one another? I think what we see here is that those who abuse their freedom in Christ are viewed almost in a cannibalistic kind of way, that you're biting and devouring and consuming. MacArthur Describe this, this action of those not properly loving and serving one another, saying that they become destructive. And obviously, according to the text, they bite and devour one another. And MacArthur said, those two words speak of wild animals engaged in the fury of a deadly struggle. So when you, with your fellow Christian, because neither one of you can properly walk in your freedom in Christ when you are biting and devouring one another, the picture that you should have in your mind is two wild animals fighting to the death. That is the picture that Scripture paints for us here. That is how sobering and how important it is to avoid these things, to pursue devotion and loving, selfless care towards one another. If you don't, your flesh will drive you to this cannibalistic type of living where you bite devour and consume one another the way that this is avoided is that we are devoted to one another you lay aside your preferences for me and i lay aside my preferences for you it's a two-way street and it can only be accomplished if we're both walking in that same direction now, just because someone doesn't do that for you does not give you the freedom to not do that for them. But if we are, as a church body, as a church family, going to rightly walk in our freedom in Christ, you must lay down your freedoms for your brother, and your brother must lay down his freedoms for you. We must not seek to maximize our own rights, our own perceived rights, but we must work towards whatever is most edifying, and what is most encouraging and sanctifying to a brother or sister in Christ. We're to pursue devotion rather than being led willingly into destructive hate and malice. So let's pull back out and let's tie this together with, with a view towards some application and conclusion. You were called to freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from selfishness, freedom from legalism, freedom from lawlessness, freedom from self-consuming love. You were called to freedom. Brothers and sisters, live as though you are free indeed. Live as though you are free from all of those things. How are you free? You are free because you are washed in the blood of Christ the Son of God, eternally in heaven with God, one with the Father, taking on flesh, laying aside the privileges of his deity, coming to earth only to go to the cross. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, not a single sin. He lived that sinless life. He went to the cross and he took your punishment. He took your punishment so you could be free because of what he did, so that you could repent of your sins and be saved. Live, friends, as though you're free. Believe in Christ, repent of your sins, and live as though you are free. To properly live out this freedom, you must understand that your flesh will constantly and continually wage war, as long as you walk in this life, your flesh will seek to abuse the freedom that you have in Christ. It will seek to abuse that freedom either by pursuing the lust of the flesh or legalistic law-keeping that you will then tender and put on your brothers and sisters in Christ. As one who still fights in the flesh, as we know we must, you must know that tendency of your flesh, and you must Put that tendency to death. You must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You must be overpowering sin by the working of the Spirit through the Word of God and the means of grace that God has given you, or that sin will be overtaking you. You must battle against that flesh by taking up your cross daily and following Christ who lived in ultimate selflessness. You must, ultimately, as we will see in the coming weeks, you must walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh and the Spirit are at odds with one another. And we must make the choice, by God's grace, by His powerful working in us, to walk in the Spirit. This is how the Christian uses his freedom in Christ. If you are in Christ, you use the freedom from sin's penalty and power that you have to serve your brothers, to love your sisters, and to be devoted to those fellow saints in Christ rather than destroying them with your perceived rights and your perceived liberty. May we, by the Lord's grace, walk according to these truths. May the Lord write his word upon our heart so that we might walk in such a way that glorifies him, that does not seek the the pleasure and the desire of our own flesh, but seeks to make much of Christ while we love our brothers and sisters. Let's close with a word of prayer.